begin this morning uh, on this gorgeous day uh, by telling you there is something wrong with the world. It, it's a mess. I, I don't know. If, you, if you've been watching the news, I mean anytime, it doesn't matter what the stories are this week, if you're watching the news, you know it's just kind of a mess. Uh, this world we live in is, is really broken. And it's not just us. You know, every, everybody seems to recognize that there's something wrong. It's just we don't always agree on what is wrong, what's gone wrong. And, of course, the Bible has a lot to say about what's wrong with the world, but that's not a primary source for a lot of people. And so we just have this sense that something's wrong, and, and then maybe we go and sort of find someone to blame. I don't, I don't like how things are, and so who could I point the finger at? Is it, is it the politicians? Is it, the, is, it, uh, is it my family members? <laughs> my ex? Is it my preacher? Some, some, somebody's messing it all up for me. Somebody's creating this problem. Sometimes we just uh, uh, ignore it. And we kind of get addicted to positivity. I don't know, you sort of meet people some like this sometimes. I tend to be a little more negative, but uh, you find people that are sort of addicted to positivity. They only want to hear messages that are nice. They only want to hear good things because that's sort of their antidote to this overwhelming feeling that something's broken, that something has gone wrong. Other people will self-medicate against it. They'll, they'll... They'll use whatever they use. Might be a substance, might be, uh, might be alcohol, might be drugs, might, might be some activity, might be adrenaline, but they'll, they'll find some way to make sure that they don't have to feel too much, that there's something that's gone wrong. But generally speaking, what we do is humanity sort of reverse engineers the problem. And what I mean by that is that we, we know that something's wrong. We know that there's something broken about the world around us. And then we just kind of take whatever problem we can get our hands on, whatever crisis comes up, and we sort of stuff it into that blank space and say, this is the reason that everything's falling apart. So we've got you know, all kinds of activists, all kinds of people complaining about what's wrong, how it is that we're sort of destroying ourselves and, and how the world is going to come to an end. And they all have different ideas about it, but they've basically just all started with this premise that something is wrong and then taken whatever crisis was convenient and reversed engineered the answer to what it is that's wrong. Now, a lot of people blame religion for this and specifically bl blame Christianity for this for sort of starting the trend. And if you look through our history, you know, if you, a lot of our gospel meetings and a lot of our revivals and our street preachers rely on the fear of this terrible something wrong. Repent for the end is nigh. Sort of the endless prophecies that we, that we hear and the, uh, the preaching of hellfire and brimstone, this fear that there is some terrible fate awaiting you if you don't deal with what we say is wrong. And there's some truth 
to this suggestion that, that we've relied on that message far too much. But the, the other truth is that, that we're not alone anymore. Everybody has gotten in on the act. Everybody, from every point of view, religious or secular, is telling us how the world is going to come to an end, how miserable it is, and how we're responsible for it. So it doesn't matter if we're talking about the secular world or the religious world, there is a drumbeat of doom out there. I, I read some interesting research this week, a poll that indicates that somewhere between a quarter and a third of Americans today believe that the world, or at least the world as we know it, will end in their lifetime. H how do you go about making plans? <laughs> what, what do you do with that? A quarter to a third of Americans, the most optimistic uh, nationality on the planet, ones who always think that we're going to come out ahead no matter what, a quarter to a third of Americans believe the world as we know it will end in their lifetime. The interesting thing about that is that research dates back to 2018, before the pandemic. Before any of this craziness happened, people were already inclined to think the whole thing's about to collapse. It's all about to come out from underneath our feet. Well, it doesn't take too much imagination to wonder where all of this pessimism comes from. Might be about global warming or global cooling or the hole in the ozone or overpopulation or global famine or solar flares or asteroid strikes or Y2K or acid rain or the Mayan calendar or super volcanoes or thermonuclear war or artificial intelligence or a viral pandemic or even the zombie apocalypse. We've been told that it's all coming. In other words, we're constantly telling ourselves that the end is near. We're constantly telling ourselves that the world is falling apart. And you think about it, the further we get from a relationship with God, see, one of the reasons I don't worry about a lot of the things on this list is because I don't think I'm in control. When there is a benevolent, loving God who's in control of everything, we don't really have to worry about all of this stuff, do we? If I don't believe that there is a God, or if I don't believe that that God is loving, that he cares about us, then I have to worry about all of it. Because the truth is, the world we live in is incredibly fragile. And the more we understand about it, the more we learn about our place in the universe and the way that the planet works, the more we begin to realize that we could mess this up really easily. It just doesn't take that much to throw the whole system out of whack. Except that we have a God who's guiding the system. But even people of faith these days seem in many ways to be retreating into the safe space of positivity. Just don't tell me anything except the stuff that I want to hear. Just tell me everything's fine. And that Jesus loves me, and I'll be okay. And so, we struggle a little bit when we're getting into the Gospel of Matthew. 
in chapter 4, really still in the very beginning of the gospel, chapter 4 and 17 says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now we hear that message and we tend to hear the echo of all of these prophets, be they religious or secular, all of these prophets of doom. But we've got to come to terms with the fact that the gospel message was, at this point, repent because the kingdom is at hand. Now, I suspect that our problem with this is related related to the possibility that we just have a distinct misunderstanding of both repentance and kingdom. That the way that we've thought about these things has sort of skewed our understanding, our knowledge of them. And so we say, I prefer the other good news. What's the other good news? The other good news is that Jesus loves you. Here's what I want you to understand this morning. The gospel of love and the gospel of repentance, same gospel. They're the same gospel. So it's it's not that the gospel is broken, it's that our understanding of it's broken, and we, we need to sort of figure it out. Sometimes I think we miss this because we have kind of crafted a gospel that doesn't have repentance in it. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. You know, we say, uh, is grace a part of this equation? Oh, yes, we, we like grace. Grace is good. Is, is personal forgiveness of my sins part of the equation? Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Is repentance part of the equation? Not sure that we actually know at this point what repentance means. I think it's, it's one of those words that sort of gets lost in the scriptural theological mix. It comes up and we say it and we use it and it passes through conversation, but how much do we really understand about what repentance is and its significance and what it means? And I think we've allowed ourselves to do that because in a lot of ways, in a lot of Christian circles, we've kind of reduced the entire gospel down to kind of a... Uh, sin transaction. And what I mean by that is we don't want to go to hell. I think. Anybody in the room disagrees with that? We, we don't want to go to hell. And we want to know what it is that we've got to do. What criteria do we have to meet to not go to hell? A lot of times we're not even particularly concerned with whether or not we go to heaven, we just know we don't want to go to hell. And so, what do we have to do to not go to hell? And then we end up with some combination, depending on our, depending on our congregation, between, depending on our denomination, our upbringing, with some combination of a declaration that I need to make, some level of discipline, and some kind of moralism. I know i got to keep my nose clean. And if I could do those things adequately, then I'll be able to slap a saved label on myself and, and I won't go to hell. And this, because of this, when we hear this, this message, this gospel message, repent for the kingdom is at hand, what we hear is, is repent 
meaning seek forgiveness for your sin, because of this kingdom, which means the end is nigh, judgment is coming, so you're running out of time to deal with your sin. Now, I don't want to minimize the importance of dealing with our sin, because that's an issue. I come to Jesus as a sinner, and I need his forgiveness and grace. That's real. All of that is true. But we've kind of turned the good news into a message of warning about a coming condemnation. And we don't normally consider that good news. You need to understand that everybody who heard this, everybody who heard this, who was interested in the, the possibility that Jesus was the Messiah, heard this message as good news. Now, we don't, we don't usually think of like dire warnings as good news. I told you you need to leave right now because you left the iron on and your house is going to burn down. That's not good news. That's the way we treat this gospel message from Jesus Christ. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Is that really what he intended? Is that what he's communicating? I don't think so. And let me, let me explain something about this. The good news is a message of hope. First and foremost, it is a message of hope. And I kind of believe at this point in my personal journey that the first disciples had the advantage of waiting for a tangible kingdom. They're all expecting a Messiah to show up who's going to take the throne and, and restore Israel to, to prominence and power. And we're very critical of that. You know, we look back with our hindsight and say, oh, those, those silly disciples, they misunderstood the whole point. We look back and we think, well, that's not what it was about. It wasn't about overthrowing Rome. It's not about your, your political aspirations. But then what do we do? We kind of take it to the other extreme. We say it has nothing to do with God's reign on earth and everything to do with heaven. It's all about getting into heaven. First disciples had a certain advantage because they're anticipating something physical. They're anticipating something that will be present, that they'll be able to see and feel and touch and interact with. They're anticipating that it will be here. And we've kind of gone to the opposite extreme, and everything about this kingdom is distant. It's out there. It's far. What Jesus is saying when he says repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand is that this kingdom that you've been waiting for is arriving. And it is different from everything else in this world, so you need to start being different from everything else in this world. It's a message of hope. And so we come to the beginning of chapter 5 in Matthew. Where Matthew tells us, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Now, 
Matthew presents this teaching to us that we've come to know as the Sermon on the Mount. And we kind of think of it as a single, solitary sermon. That's probably not the case. This is probably an amalgam of the things that Jesus taught uh, consistently from place to place. Remember, they, when there's no radio or television, the message has to be repeated. And these are things that the early disciples who followed Jesus around would have memorized from his teachings. That they would have communicated in their own ministries down the road. And by the time Matthew sits down to, to relate his gospel, he says, Here, here's the kind of things that Jesus was teaching. Whenever a crowd would gather, he would go out into the countryside where they could all gather around him. And these are the kinds of things that he would say. So this message is representative of everything that Jesus had to teach about this kingdom that he's bringing. But to really understand all the wonderful, fantastic ideas in the Sermon on the Mount, to really understand it, I think we've got to come to terms with this idea of repentance and the idea of kingdom. So repentance is a change of direction. It's a change of direction. It literally means to change one's mind, to think differently about a thing. And if to think differently, then to do differently. And in a lot of ways, the, our culture has kind of reduced repentance to feeling bad. Repentance means I feel guilty for bad things that I did. And because I feel guilty about it, because I'm penitent, penitent uh, I'll be forgiven. Uh, the interesting thing about it is uh, the real idea of repentance really doesn't seem to care that much about how you feel about it. Not that concerned with whether or not you feel guilty. I know that sounds a little crazy coming from a preacher because it's our job to make you feel guilty about the sin in your life. I'm not particularly invested in you feeling guilty about the sin in your life. I think maybe we should because if we're sinful and we feel no guilt at all, there's like another word for that. It's called pathological. So if I know I'm guilty and I don't care, eh, it's like a mental health problem. But in terms of repentance, in terms of the biblical dynamic of what we're trying to get at here, how you feel about it is kind of irrelevant. Repentance is a change of direction because I've changed my perception, I've changed the way that I think, and so now I need to change the way that I am traveling. We have an idea about sin and forgiveness that's kind of embedded in, in a really high church idea of sin management. That the whole business of the gospel is, is the problem that I'm a sinner, and I've got to find some way to deal with the problem. I have to manage the problem of sin. But the operative quality of repentance is not guilt, it is action. It is a question of what I'm going to do about it. Jesus often says, I forgive you. As a matter of fact, the leaders of his day were often mad at him for making this statement because he makes this statement kind of nonchalantly, like it's no big deal. Your sins have been forgiven. How can you say that? 
There's a whole process for that. We've got sacrifices that have to be made. There's, there's prayers that have to be offered. There's scarlet cords. and there's Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And when they, when they try to call him on the carpet, he's like, well, wh- which would be easier for you? To say your sins are forgiven or you're healed? And then he'd heal them, and then they'd be all flustered. Forgiveness is the easy part for God. He just does it because he loves us. He'll forgive if we ask him. That's all through Scripture. That's not me telling you that. That's all through Scripture. All through the Old Testament, long before Jesus' ministry, God repeatedly says to his people, you come to me seeking forgiveness, and I'll give it to you. What I'm really interested, though, in is a change of direction. Not that you feel guilty about it, but that you change direction, that you do something different. The operative quality of repentance is action. So Jesus follows up his offer of forgiveness with the instruction that we would go and sin no more. Which sounds an awful lot like perfection, and none of us are perfect. But Jesus says, go and sin no more. Get off the path that you're on, and get on to a better path. When I was a kid, the really cool toys, the ones that my parents would not buy for me, but that my friends had, the really cool toys were slot cars. Slot cars is a plastic track that was electrified, and you had a little car with a little motor in it, and you had this handheld trigger and you would pull the trigger, and it would make the car go. And, and we're always going you know, to try to squeeze that trigger, like, past, past its stops to try to make that car go faster. And if you made the car go fast at the wrong corner or something, it would fly off of the track. And then we had, uh, you know, the really cool sets were the ones with the loop-de-loops, right? So a slot car, and you had to get it going just the right speed, create that sort of centrifugal force that would keep it on the track as it goes upside down and comes back in. And they call them slot cars because at the bottom of the car there's a little slot. And on the track, there's this, there's this slot in the track. This little pin on the car would go into the slot. And that's, that's how it would be electrified and it would run around the track. Now I'm explaining all of this to you, for you young people for whom race cars are all digital creation and didn't have to have slots and cars and all that. I'm explaining all of this to you because this is a very helpful image for me of what repentance is about. You cannot change anything without pulling the pin out of the slot and putting it into a different slot. This is repentance. I have to change the path that I'm on. I have to get out of this one track and put my car down into another track. And repentance, understand, is not just about your salvation. Every one of us is a sinner. We tell ourselves this all the time. Nobody's perfect. We don't use that to lament the fact that nobody's perfect. We use that to excuse ourselves from the fact that we're not perfect. 
everybody's a sinner, which is an unremarkable truth, it is also a tragedy. And so we have this tragedy that is readily dismissed. It is unremarkable because sin is commonplace, but it is commonplace because the whole world is broken. Every one of us, the whole thing, it's all broken. Your sin and mine are not only representative of how the world is broken, your sin and mine are actively contributing to the fact that the world is broken. And we like to think that these things are disconnected. Like I could be a sinner and I could have this problem that I need Jesus to fix for me, but my sin doesn't impact anyone else. And guess what? That is a lie. Our sin impacts everything and everybody in our lives. And so I'm less interested in what your sins are than in what you're prepared to do about them. Because if we're not prepared to do anything, if we're not prepared to change our direction, then we haven't changed our minds. We're still on the old path. We're stuck in the same slot hoping to arrive at a new destination, and it doesn't work that way. It is useless to feel bad about the way that I have contributed to sin in the world without changing my path. And the worst part of not changing my path is that I have to participate in this pretense of making believe that everything's really okay. And that's just exhausting. Repentance heals a bit of the broken world. See, and this, this is where... This is where we have to understand this is all about a tangible reality. This is, this is not just about whether or not I get into heaven one day or whether or not I escape hell one day. It's about a tangible reality right here and now. If I get off of my path and onto the path of Jesus Christ, then I have become a participant in what he's doing. I have taken one old sinner off of the market and I have replaced him with someone who is kingdom commissioned. I have changed the world. In my own little corner maybe, but I have changed the world. The point in all of this is that our brokenness leaks. It, it leaks onto everything. And every step that we make, every change that we make that gets us a little closer to Jesus closes up some of the gaps, makes us more whole. Changes the world in ways that, honestly, we'll probably never fully comprehend. Not, not until maybe we sit with Jesus and he can show us back on our life what, what meant what. It's not just repentance that we need to understand differently. We really need to understand the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is not the same thing as heaven. Now, in Matthew's gospel, this is the phraseology, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Matthew's gospel is written primarily to a Jewish audience, and a Jewish audience is unaccustomed to writing or saying God out loud. So in the other gospels, it's often the kingdom of God. In Matthew, it's primarily the kingdom of heaven. But these are interchangeable ideas. We're just saying this is a kingdom that belongs to him. A kingdom that is his. Now the term heaven in scripture is a little bit confusing because it really means potentially three different things. The heavens used to describe our atmosphere. Right? The sky. Sky above us. Be beautiful today. And then there's beyond that sky, there is what we now know as outer space. There is the, the universe. That's sort of the second heaven. The third heaven is some sort of space beyond that in which God dwells. Now, it's useful for us to think of it as a physical space. I'm not sure that that's entirely accurate, but it's this idea that heaven is a place where God is, that it is beyond all the world as we have known it. Now, we are the victims or the benefactors, if you will, of a rather simplified, oversimplified evangelical message that says if I could somehow properly manage my sin, then I will go to heaven. And that's, that's what we think of sometimes. We think of the kingdom of heaven, but that's not what we're referring to really. There's a couple of problems with it. One is that repentance really suggests that sin isn't manageable. That if there was some patch I could put on it, then I wouldn't need repentance. I wouldn't need to lift myself out of this slot and drop myself into another. I wouldn't need to change my path or my direction. I could just sort of patch up the sin problem in my life and move on. The other problem is it's not at all clear that the righteous will go to a place called heaven. Certainly not all of us. And for most of Christian history, for most of Christian history, what Christians believed is not sort of the, lo there's a lot of weird ideas now that, you know, we, we die and immediately end up at the pearly gates and St. Peter has us on a list or he doesn't. And there's those kind of, and then if we get in, we go float around on clouds maybe become angels, guardian angels for the people we left behind. Of course, none of this is biblical. <laughs> for most of Christian history, what Christians believed is that when they die, they went to sleep. Now, we could debate that, but, but that's, that's a historical fact. They went to sleep. This is why we say rest in peace. You go to sleep, and you'll be raised at the resurrection. And what is the resurrection? Resurrection is the day when you receive a new spiritual body. A new body, like the new body that Christ had after his resurrection. And that at that time, Jesus will be returning to earth and he will establish his kingdom on earth. So where do we get that we go to heaven? Well, it's a bit of a misnomer because heaven shows up here. The barrier between the two evaporates. More importantly, this is the kingdom 
of heaven, not the kingdom in heaven. It is not a far-off reality. It is not intangible. It is not inaccessible. It is real and present. Yet, it is not of this world. We know that, right? Jesus said that himself. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Does that mean that it's far off? Well, he's explaining himself, of course, to Pilate. He asks him if he's a king. He doesn't say really so much as he says, my kingdom is not of this world. Which implies that he's a king, but not a particular threat to Pilate in that moment. My kingdom is not of this world. What he says to Pilate is that my kingdom is from another place. In function, in purpose, in politic, and in nature, the kingdom of heaven is from a God place. It's from a heaven place. Pilate is not going to understand anything about this kingdom because his whole notion of kingdom is wrapped up in this world and this place. God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom, comes from God. It comes from a heavenly place. It's not to say that the kingdom of heaven is located exclusively in heaven because the kingdom of heaven exists wherever Christ is king, wherever God reigns. So rather than a distant future reality, this is close and personal. And so Jesus doesn't say, there is a kingdom somewhere, and one day, maybe many years from now, you'll experience that kingdom. He says, no, the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is near. The king has arrived. The kingdom, particularly after his resurrection, the kingdom has begun. Jesus is the king. Our spaces, if they are under his reign, are his spaces. Our life, if it's under his reign, is in his kingdom. Our home, if it's under his reign, is in his kingdom. Our church, if it's under his reign, is in his kingdom. It exists wherever God reigns. And if we are not the kingdom in the absence of Jesus, if we are not living for the kingdom, if we're not following the king, if we're not engaged in the king's mission, if we're not given to the king's way, if we are wrapped up in the things that matter to us rather than the things that matter to the king, it's possibly because we have misunderstood and misapplied the whole idea of repentance. We haven't gotten ourselves out of the track that we were on and into the track that leads to Jesus. We are trying to get to a new place by doing the same old thing, and that just doesn't work. And so we repent. We change our mind. We change our path. It becomes my path and my king and my mission, and we live in kingdom. And when we do that, the world shrinks a little bit, and the kingdom grows a little bit. Most importantly, we need to understand that this kingdom operates by a different economy. What the world values and how the world works, 
Everything about the kingdom of heaven is different from that. It is a kingdom of justice and righteousness. The prophet said that the law, my law, will be written on their hearts and written on their minds. It's going to change our hearts. He's going to put his spirit in us. This king is going to reign forever. Basically, everything that is wrong, everything that is broken, will be turned upside down, will be inverted in this new kingdom so that it can be made right again. And so Jesus' instruction about kingdom begins with this different economy. And this is how the Sermon on the Mount opens. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Who exactly has cause to be happy about the arrival of this new kingdom? Well, look, if you're spiritually impoverished, if you have nothing to offer the king, the good news is you will receive everything that the kingdom has to offer. If you've known loss and pain in this life, the good news is you will know the care and the comfort of the kingdom. If you've been pushed to the back of the line, the good news is that in the kingdom, the first will be last and the last will be first. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So if you want to know what a world, if you want to know a world that is actually righteous and just and not broken and messed up like this one, if you ache for the goodness of God, if you've been starving for his truth, the good news is you will finally be filled. If you've shown a little kindness to those who didn't deserve it, the good news is you're going to receive so much more kindness than you ever deserved. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. If you have a childlike faith, if it's untainted by corruption, there's really good news. You will look on the very face of God. If you have struggled to bring peace while everybody around you groaned for war, the good news is you're going to be in God's family. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Whatever hardship, whatever indignities you've had to suffer for the sake of the king, the good news is the whole kingdom is yours. So Jesus says, Repent, because the kingdom is at hand, the kingdom of heaven. I say to you this morning, not as a warning, not as a threat, but as a declaration of hope, repent, because the kingdom of Jesus Christ is here. If you receive it as a warning, if you receive it as a threat of coming judgment, if you think I'm just telling you to be better and do better, think again. Because maybe there is real hope 
in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Maybe there is a real way and real truth. Maybe real life has come. And maybe the message of this gospel is that if real life has come, you don't want to miss it. So leave whatever nonsense and brokenness you're into right now and set yourself into this new path so that you can be a part of this great thing that he has started, that you can be a part of this kingdom. And so what does it mean to repent? It means that the kingdom of Jesus Christ is so very valuable, so very perfect, so very glorious and wonderful that you need to be prepared to do whatever you got to do to be a part of it.